You're listening to a special edition of One Decision. The three Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, were among the loudest voices calling for sanctioning Russia back in 2008 after the invasion of Georgia, and again in 2014 after the invasion and annexation of Crimea. Two subsequent NATO summits agreed on an enhanced forward presence, stationing battalions of around a thousand in each of the Baltics and Poland. This year, when Russia launched a further invasion into Ukraine in February, they called for an even stronger response from NATO and the West. The news from Madrid saw a concerted effort to beef up NATO's defence posture. I'm sitting here on the sidelines of the NATO summit with Yuri Luik, NATO permanent representative of Estonia. We've just heard Jens Stoltenberg uh, unveil the new strategic concept um, published from NATO. The last time they did this back in 2010, it talked about NATO seeking active cooperation with Russia. Uh, today, the new strategic concept says that Ru- the Russian Federation is the most significant and direct threat to allies' security and to peace and stability in the Euro-Atlantic area. Uh, how much of a long time coming uh, was that re-evaluation of the Russian threat in your opinion? Well uh, we are quite pleased because uh, as you said uh, there is a US announcement which also says that uh, there will be enhanced rotation of US troops in the Baltic region in the Baltic states in fact but importantly uh, also three framework countries uh, have announced uh, three so-called framework countries uh, Uh, which cover three Baltic states, uh, UK in Estonia, Canada in Latvia and uh, Germany in Lithuania have announced additional contributions, both command and control and uh, additional combat forces. Um, Not all of it will be on our territory, but it is also very important that uh, if necessary or during the crisis, these units are designated specifically for for Estonia, for instance, and can be moved in as uh, as quickly as possible. The anxiety felt in the Baltics is understandable. All are former Soviet republics with Russian-speaking minorities on the frontier of Europe and next door to Russia. As Russia shocked the world, ploughing into Ukraine beyond the areas in the Donbass that they've contested for years, the Baltics were less shocked. So-called deterrence had not been enough. Egils Levitz is the president of Latvia. I think a lot of people in Europe want to defend the freedom. And uh, of course the alternative is to capitulate, to accept uh, Russian domination. And I think uh, for, for uh, the majority of Europeans it is not acceptable. And this is the price also uh, which we should pay. Uh, we don't. Uh, we should keep the peace. I will stress that. Keep the peace by showing strength. This is a, a, a concept. Of the three Baltic nations, the one under the most pressure right now is Lithuania. The most southern nation, it shares borders with Latvia, Poland, Belarus and Kaliningrad, the Russian exclave on the Baltic Sea. Recently, it's come under fire from Russia for enforcing EU sanctions and blocking the transit of some goods from Kaliningrad towards Russia, provoking a fiery response from the Kremlin and making it a target for cyber attacks from Russian groups. 
We spoke to Davidas Matulionis, the Lithuanian ambassador to NATO. What can you tell us about uh, about those cyber attacks? Are they ongoing? Um, are they uh, a huge cause of concern or are they not something to be hugely worried about? You know, it's a cause of concern, definitely. But since uh, we uh, got some, I mean, information in advance that there will be some attacks last week and and, uh, and they started on Monday in principle. Therefore, our cybersecurity people, they were prepared, I mean, to, to react. And there were, there were some damage, especially on Monday, but uh, the time passes, I mean, uh, the damage is uh, lower and lower, our institutions are more capable and we have a cyber security center and they are helping us uh, and uh, today they are continuing this cyber attacks but they are not as uh, as uh, uh, i mean um, massive as, uh, as it was on monday and i think yesterday was also you said you were warned that the attacks would come could you tell us a little more about that was that uh, intelligence showing that the cyber attacks were coming was it a warning um, I cannot uh, I cannot comment on that because uh, we simply knew that there will be attacks right okay very very interesting I had to try Lithuania is home to a pinch point between Kaliningrad and Belarus, which, under Putin ally President Lukashenko, is becoming increasingly active in the war against Ukraine. The news from NATO that troops would be beefed up and spending increased could not have come at a better time for Vilnius. Davidas Matulionis again. In principle, we are reassured, but uh, having in mind that uh, Russian policy, as I said, uh, 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 military operations, I mean, war is a part of their foreign and security policy, then we have to do everything that is at our disposal to deter from any military adventures. And why it's so important? Because uh, uh, Lithuania, especially Lithuania, is squeezed between uh, accomplice Belarus, which is in principle uh, the same Russia, and Kaliningrad region. And you know this, uh, this uh, uh, Suvalki gap, and Kaliningrad uh, transit issue. It's a very volatile, it's, it's, uh, it's a fragile, um, and we have to, to, to prepare, uh, we have to be vigilant. And, and when Belarus launched missiles into Ukraine, how did you act? Because you share a big border with, with Belarus. Has that changed any, uh, uh, any, uh, any strategic thinking on your part to, uh, to, to move any, uh, any of your military or, or anyone on your border with Belarus? Or is that just something you're watching very closely? You know, this is, uh, we have been saying that for se- already several years, that uh, there is a very, very close integration between Russia and Belarus. But this, I mean, accomplice, role, I mean, a complicity uh, between Russia and Belarus, uh, I mean, providing territory for for, uh, I mean, uh, military uh, attacks against neighboring countries, this is a game changer, actually. It's a best proof for all allies that we have to consider Belarus in the same line as Russia. They have no, in principle, they have no uh, sovereignty when it comes to the security policy. And uh, therefore, it's just the uh, name is different, but in principle, completely integrated into into Russian I mean, military um, doctrine and um, military strategy. And is, it, is that something you are going to be pushing with your NATO colleagues while you're here yes, in Madrid? Yes, definitely. That was one of the reasons. We said, uh, just look, I mean, 
we, we have uh, now uh, added 1,200 kilometers additional border. Belarus, uh, Lithuania is bordering, uh, Poland is bordering, and, and Latvia. In addition to 1,300, then 1,200 with Belarus, you know, the uh, NATO has to act and has to, to show, I mean, resolve to defend Eastern, uh, Eastern allies and uh, Belarus is part of this. The increasing amounts of hybrid and asymmetric warfare was a topic on the agenda at NATO. Among those leading the charge of defence is Estonia, a remarkably tech-savvy nation, as well as headquarters for NATO's Cyber Centre of Excellence. Yuri Luik, Estonia's permanent representative again. Well, um, unfortunately, Russia attacks uh, Western countries uh, continuously. I mean, some attacks are are more kind of... uh, minuscule against a particular object, infrastructure, uh, but there are wide range attacks. Estonia was a victim of one of those attacks, uh, which really covered a lot of uh, uh, strategically important uh, targets. Uh, uh, and I think it's very important that NATO now has underlined in the strategic concept that uh, uh, there is a possibility that a cyber attack might raise to the to the level of Article 5. But of course, I mean, we would be talking then of massive attack, which would take out massive amounts of infrastructure, would have, I don't know, human victims or, or what have you. Uh, luckily, we have not seen such so, uh, attacks of such magnitude, uh, and uh, hopefully we never will. But, but obviously we have to be, we have to be ready to respond uh, if if it's necessary. Now the centre uh, is 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 working with kind of uh, um, protocols or or uh, kind of developing new techniques of cyber defence. A lot of exercises, which is very important, uh, because uh, cyber attacks are becoming more and more complicated. So also the response is more complicated and, and exercises are often the way of uh, sort of certifying that you are really ready for, for any type of attack. Uh, the centre is also looking at the legal aspects uh, because uh, um, there is always a question whether the laws of warfare, which are, are, are natural in, say, conventional warfare. How would they be interpreted in case uh, there is a massive cyber attack? Perhaps the biggest symbolic change coming out of NATO was the publishing of a new defence strategy, markedly different from the last strategy published back in 2010. This time, there is no mention of efforts to work on strategic cooperation with Russia. It's now described as the single biggest threat in the Euro-Atlantic area. China, totally absent from the last defence concept, gets a mention too. Peter Bator is the Slovakian ambassador to NATO. In the past years, definitely before the 2014, we we were striving for very good relations with Russia. In in 2010, a strategic concept, we even named Russia as a strategic partner. Uh, And then we saw what happened in, uh, in Ukraine for the first time. And even after that, we started to reinforce the defense on the eastern flank. But it was more symbolic. It was uh, before, uh, or what is behind the idea is that we would just have multinational forces present there. So should any provocation happen there, it would not be just, just 
the armed forces of one respective state, it would be more forces, and then it would be at least a big part of NATO involved in the conflict or in, in the provocation. Now we have learned that uh, the threat even increased, and then we need something more. It would not be just you know having more states being part of the potential conflict, but to have forces that would be able to defend. So uh, whether we underestimated the threat coming from Russia, I would say yes. Uh, but we we are learning fast now, and even the Secretary General's uh, press statement yesterday was quite uh, uh, quite clear on that that we are going to increase the number of forces that would be on high readiness, which which also means that we will be prepared to defend. Slovakia, formerly part of Czechoslovakia and a constituent part of the Soviet Union, is south of the Baltics. The Slovaks have a more nuanced relationship with Russia. Historically suspicious of America and the West more generally, Putin's expansionism has shifted what had been long-standing attitudes in the country. Part of it, it's history. Although, uh, you know, we had Russian troops since 1968, uh, uh, since the invasion of, of 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 the troops of the Warsaw Pact, and they stayed there for for far too long, and so we should have had much more negative stance to Russia. But it was that was not the case. I think it's partially be, because of the history and, you know, like being part of this Slavic uh, tribes. So I think there is more, uh, it's more like a romantic view uh, of Russia than, than, than anything that would be, uh, that, would, that would stand on something that would be more realistic. Second, it's not a secret that for, for several reasons there have been some anti-U.S. Uh, moods in, in the public, especially since 1999 of the Kosovo campaign. Third, uh, we had parties that were, you know, when, when they were in opposition, sometimes even in, in, in the government, you know, they used this Russian card just to influence the public. And usually they, they uh, combine this nationalistic and pro-Russian uh, into one narrative. So, so that, w- that was one of the reasons. And, uh, you know, when you compare the situation, and even in December uh, last year, when we had uh, ten, uh, uh, tens of thousands of people in the streets protesting against a very... I would say generic uh, bilateral agreement with the United States on defense cooperation, and you know people protesting and uh, against nuclear uh, bases stationed in Slovakia, which was of course more hallucination than anything else, and and protesting against the government that that wanted to conclude that uh, uh, that agreement, and then compare the situation in March when you know people just saw the war in Ukraine, and that was one of the main reasons why why the public opinion changed that dramatically. I would say, uh, I mean, for Slovakia, really dramatically. Because they saw people fleeing the country, they saw it was it was mainly women and, and children, uh, and and you know many of them just just know uh, Ukrainians because they used to travel to Slovakia and beg or through Slovakia, so it's very close for them uh, even geographically, but also on, on on this human dimension. And then they saw okay that there is something wrong like with Russia with Russia that you know has always been claiming they are a very peaceful nation. They've been already uh, only defending their own. People. People now seeing, you know, Ukrainians fleeing their own country because there are bombs falling on their homes. I think that w- that was a turning point for many Slovaks. So now I think the uh, the pro-Russian uh, sentiment is, is even decreasing. Uh, we woke up one day on the 24th of February to a totally different region, to a totally different war from from a state that was somewhere in the Central Europe, quite far from uh, from Russia, with having Ukraine on our 
our border with having Poland. So, I mean, we, we could not even imagine that there might be a conflict uh, uh, close to our borders, you know, and, and, and just, just in one day, everything has changed. Now we have uh, foreign troops on our territory, which had not been the case before. As Putin faces increasing unity across NATO and grueling sanctions from the European bloc, he's moved to counter back, weaponizing a critical lifeline to many European nations, Russian oil and gas. For many nations in Europe, Russia has long been the principal supplier of fuel. One by one, cutting the supply to many countries, just as energy prices spiral worldwide, is having a real impact at the consumer level. As Western nations and NATO members resolve to continue punishing Russia, their leaders are increasingly aware of the bitter pill they are having to ask their citizens to swallow. Latvia is in the same situation as other NATO member states. Of course, uh, uh, our dependence from till now from Russian gas is used uh, on, from Russia as a tool to influence uh, the politics. But... Uh, uh, we are not more importing uh, Russia's, uh, Russian uh, ga- gas, and uh, we are going to LNG gas. So that uh, this dependence is, uh, in principle, not more uh, existing. So we should see what is uh, more important for us, uh, our freedom, our values, our country, or um, uh, some, uh, some uh, millions of, of euros. And I think if we are, uh, would ask uh, Spaniards on Latvia, or Latvians, the answer will be the same. Of course, our country and our freedom is uh, much more valuable as, uh, um, so to say, economic gains. Slovakia, along with Hungary and the Czech Republic, asked for an exemption from the EU ban on Russian crude oil imports. NATO ambassador Peter Bator told us about the economic issues his country Slovakia is struggling to balance in the response to Putin's aggression. You're all landlocked countries um, who are very dependent on Russian energy. Slovakia's only domestic refiner, Slovnast, uh, I understand, runs exclusively on Russian oil. Um, and your government at the time argued that Slovakia stood to be the hardest hit um, by the EU sanctions if you weren't able to get that crucial exemption, which you did. Uh, how vulnerable is Slovakia to Russian pressure when it comes to your energy security? Are you moving now to diversify your energy sources and who who are you looking uh, to uh, to replace Russia as a source of energy? We learned a lesson a few uh, years ago, uh, more than a few. I think it was in 2008 uh, or 2009 when, when uh, Russia stopped uh, the supplies or, or to Slovakia. In few weeks, our GDP uh, uh, went down by several percents. It was a, a it was a, a serious hit. At that time, it was more focused on the gas. Now it's more oil. Uh, yes, we are a landlocked country, and we were used to, and we have been used to supplies uh, coming from Russia just through the pipeline. So we 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 haven't been using any other sort of of transport or of these energy uh, sources. Now we need to adapt. I mean, originally my country asked for for even longer period uh, periods just just to have an exemption. Now it's eighteen months, which does not mean it would be the full eighteen months. It means that up to that, and we we have been working. 
hard on uh, just just how to find alternative sources. Of course, uh, with, with the gas, you've got the um, you've got the LNG terminals. With, with the oil, you've got different uh, routes on how to transport uh, the oil to uh, to our country. One technical issue is that that, that the biggest refinery, uh, as you said, Slovnaft, finished part, which is part of the um, Hungarian mall. Uh, company also is running on certain technologies that should be changed in order just to be uh, able uh, to effectively um, uh, produce uh, fuel of the uh, well of something different than, than the Russian oil. So so we need to look at that as well, and we've been looking at that. Uh, we know that some of the processes can be changed quite quickly, but some some of the others you know just take time. So that's why we ask for the exception, uh, an exemption, just just because you know we. You cannot change the technology overnight, but we've been working hard just to find solution as quickly as possible, not to be dependent on the Russian oil, because you have never a guarantee that, that Russia would not stop the oil supplies tomorrow. So uh, I think we have some partial solutions already. Of course, we would suffer uh, more than those countries that have that have alternative routes. But at the end of the day, we have only one solution, and that is to find uh, new technology, to find a solution. You know, just how to survive. I mean, and I think we will. I mean, that, that's just a matter of time. It's not a matter of whether we could or could not do that. It's just a matter of time when, yeah. uh, not if. You say you have some. You think you have some solutions already. What, uh, are you able to say what those solutions are? As, are there any countries? Can you name any countries who you may be looking to buy uh, oil and gas from instead of Russia uh, in the coming months? There are several countries. There are several routes. I would not go into details. You know, as as the talks are underway, uh, especially our Ministry of Economy is is doing its uh, its job very well. And at the same time, we are looking at the technology part, how to how to change the technology as well, because in, those are you know interlinked things. Mm-hmm. That the, uh, you, if you do not have the technology and you have the supplies, then you might face some challenges. But if we can do both, and I think we can, then then we can get rid of the dependency quite quickly. Uh, and is eighteen months uh, up to eighteen months? Is that big enough time frame for you to do that, or do you think you're going to be in time asking for a further extension to that exemption? I, you know, this has been approved. Uh, what what I'm hearing from my own capital is that uh, that we can do that. Of course, there has been some political criticism by by, by several parties, like saying okay, this was not a good deal, and we should have had something more. But uh, but you know, the experts said that okay, eighteen months, and it was the prime minister uh, who said it in Brussels that eighteen months would be just enough for us to adjust to why I, you know, I trust my government, they mm. can do that. The economic challenges in responding to Russia aren't just to do with energy either. For years, NATO has failed to convince many members to commit to a minimum 2% of GDP spending on national defence forces. The pledges made in Madrid this week are ambitious, at a time of rising inflation across the West. But it's a necessary commitment that Finland, and future member of NATO, told us is inevitable. The final word from Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto with a brutal truth about Europe's preparedness for the invasion. But of course we also have to admit that the European security architecture has collapsed because it couldn't prevent a war in Europe. The whole security architecture, of course the main main task for that is to prevent a war and we had two Minsk agreements and we had a Budapest agreement on the nuclear uh, weapons and so forth, but but we still saw a direct attack against uh, Ukraine. That's it for the special episode from One Decision, looking at the various priorities and concerns of countries across the eastern flank, Europe and NATO's frontier against Russia. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never have to miss an episode. 
Drop us a line and tell us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at OneDecisionPod. Or you can get us on email on OneDecision at OneDecisionPodcast.com. From me and the team in Madrid, thank you for listening to our special coverage of the historic NATO Summit. See you next time.